Good evening. And thank you. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you here. I am Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it is my privilege to welcome you here tonight. Uh, our speaker tonight is working on a new project called Buck Denver Asks What's in the Bible, which I was watching a little bit of today. And uh, one of the people answering the question, what's in the Bible, says it's filled with about a billion pages. And it strikes me that it feels like it's about a billion below zero today. <clears throat> so thank you very, very much for coming out tonight. Uh, just a word about the flow for the evening. We'll hear from our, our speaker, and then we'll have 10, 15, 20 minutes to ask him some questions. So I encourage you to think about what you'd like to ask him, and you'll be able to come to either of these mics uh, to do so. If you've followed the Faith and Life Lecture Series over the last 10 years now, it's hard to believe it's been going on that long, you know we have tried to cast a broad net in terms of the kinds of topics that we invite you to listen to. Everything from faith and everyday work and faith and medicine, faith and the evening news. We've had them on faith and humor, faith and comic books. And tonight you will hear from another creative person. Most of us know him um, from his work with VeggieTales, which he will talk about tonight. But I always like to ask our speakers a question about what isn't on their biography. One of the things you may not know about him is that for about six months he worked at Devani's where he admits he was not very good at making hoagies, which meant he could not be promoted to make pizzas. <laughs> We've actually been working for two or three years to get him here, and I am so happy that he was willing to join us tonight. Will you help me welcome Phil Vischer? Hi, kids. I'm Bob the Tomato. Or perhaps you know me better as a somewhat uptight British asparagus. Or maybe you'll know me best as a cantankerous decorative gourd. Or a very old grape. Or a little pea from France. Or... Or perhaps you just know me as the voice that says, And now it's time for Silly Songs with Larry. The part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. Um, hi. Thanks for coming. My, I guess my friend uh, Eric Metaxas was here last year, and I heard that somebody rode a motorcycle all the way from Canada to hear him speak. Did anyone ride a motorcycle from Canada? <laughs> you were kidding. Okay, that's okay. You don't have to come all the way from Canada. But just uh, anyone ride a motorcycle at all tonight? Because that would be really, really impressive. It's a little chilly. I'm from Chicago, so I'm not unaccustomed to cold. And I actually went to college up here for a year and a half uh, at St. Paul Bible College before it became Crown College out near Waconia. Um, for, went for, attended for three semesters and then was invited not to return um, because I failed chapel. Which, you gotta, you know, it doesn't matter how well you do in your studies, if you don't show up for chapel frequently enough, your career is over. Um, 
but it's chilly. I'm used to chilly. I can handle chilly, but it's chillier than, than it is usually in, in Chicago. About an hour ago, I was sitting at a McDonald's trying to make a fire out of napkins <laughs> to try to warm up, and I, I may have rented the wrong kind of car. I flew up. I usually drive up because my in-laws are up here, and so we'll drive up with the kids, which is a different thing, because then you bring your own car. I don't know if you knew that when you drive. You usually you don't rent a car. But I flew up, so I rented a car, and I, and I always just, my assistant says, whatever's cheapest, and I get whatever's cheapest, which in this case was a Toyota Yaris. And you know what? If a Toyota Yaris is like, they're they're like this big. You know, if you've, if you've ever gone to Costco and bought one of those five-pound tubs of mayonnaise, you know, for the church picnic, <laughs> those tubs are bigger than a Toyota Yaris. <laughs> and, I, and I discovered today, driving around, that a car that small and tin can-like does not hold heat very well. <laughs> so if you stop and turn it off immediately, it's cold. And anyway... Uh, but I made it, I survived, and I'm here. Um, and so I figured since I was invited and billed as the, the VeggieTales guy, you'd probably want to hear a little bit at least about VeggieTales. And then I'll tell you my story and what that has to do with God and dreams and, and life and faith and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It may, it may not be quite as intellectually stimulating as Eric Metaxas's talk on Bonhoeffer, but... <laughs> Bob the Tomato and Bonhoeffer are, are related in some ways. There's, there's the B at the beginning of the name. <laughs> Resisting Hitler. Oh, no, wait, that's not. No, never mind. Go back to the B. Um, anyway, it, it's really good to be here. I, um, when I was a kid, I liked to tell stories. I started uh, telling stories when I was just six or seven, started playing with puppets. I would hide behind the couch. Because I'm really shy. I'm actually, I don't even know why I'm up here. I, I was a really bashful, really shy kid. And, and, but I had funny thoughts. And I would try to figure out, how do I get my funny thoughts out without people staring at me, without the uncomfortable connection of eyes on me? And I discovered puppets. And I could hide behind the couch and put up a sock, a sock puppet and, you know, try to make my parents laugh. And that was fun. I really liked it. And then I discovered animation on Saturday morning cartoons. And then I read in a magazine that you could even make your own animated film. So I tried doing that starting when I was about nine. Made my first animated film when I was nine. It was terrible. It's not that impressive that I did that. Um, it's not hard to make a terrible animated film, actually. It's, it's, it's quite easy. Um, and decided that, you know, this is what I was going to do for, for God. This would be my work for God. I would tell stories and they would somehow have something to do with God in some way that I hadn't quite figured out yet at, at that age. Um, I went to, I was in church every Sunday, you know, grew up in church. My great-grandfather was a radio preacher in Omaha, Nebraska. I went on the air in 1923 and preached on Sunday morning every Sunday for 40 years until he died in 1963. So I, I grew up, he started a Bible missionary conference in, in northwest Iowa. I grew up in Iowa. And so I was there, you know, all the time seeing this parade of, of great missionaries and great speakers and all these amazing people that deserve to be on the cover of, of Christianity Today magazine. And, and as a shy, creative kid, I, I was pretty sure I didn't want to go to Africa because uh, <laughs> it was full of strangers. And I was not fond. Strangers were not my favorite thing as a kid. And I liked films. I liked filmmaking. I liked Saturday morning cartoons. And I was trying to figure out, well, what, 
what can I do with that? Is there a way to use that for God? Or is the only thing you can do for God to go to Africa and die in a swamp? Um, which was not all that exciting to me. Doing puppet shows for cannibals. That was just, uh, I didn't see that working. So uh, as I grew up, I, I started to get a clear picture of, okay, I think I, I can, I, can, I think I have, there's something I can do. There's something I can do with storytelling and filmmaking and technology and their puppets or animation or, or something. I just had to figure out what and when and how and you know who's gonna pay for it all. Um, and I started to develop this, this, this dream, this kind of sense of calling of, you know, I'm, I wanna tell stories that make a difference. You know, I want to, cause I, when I was a sophomore in high school, MTV turned on and we got cable, our neighborhood was wired for cable and we got this little brown box that sat on top of our RCA console television and it had, you know, 61 channels and we all freaked out, you know, cause we only had four before then. And one of them was MTV and I remember watching MTV thinking, and I was a sophomore in high school having two strong reactions. The first one was, this is so cool. Because if you remember the very first music videos, they were doing like all sorts of fun stuff. There was experimental animation, you know, and just crazy creative stuff. It was like a 24 hour uh, film festival. My second thought though was, this is trouble. Because just watching the music videos, it was clear that the values I had learned in Sunday school were not the values that were coming across on MTV. Uh, and in many cases were the, like the exact opposite. Like there was a, you know, a binary switch on the value switch and someone had flipped it and everything upside was upside down was right side up and, and reversed. And so I thought, okay, if everyone my age thinks this is as cool as I do, I think we have a problem. And I thought, okay, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm supposed to, because I understand, you know, I like computers, I like technology, I like filmmaking, I like special effects, I like the animation. Maybe I'm supposed to, like, do for Sunday school what MTV is doing for rock and roll music. Um, and I decided, well, that's, that's my dream. That's what I want to do for God. So I uh, started, I was a computer animator in Chicago. Um, this is 19... 89, um, working in Chicago, I was 22 years old. This is after I'd gotten booted out of Bible college for my, my lax chapel attendance. And um, started looking for a way to tell stories. And this 1989, six years before Toy Story, the first computer animated movie. State of the art computer animation in 1989 were the Scrubbing Bubbles commercials, <laughs> which were little balls going around a wall. That's, uh, and, you know, and it was 30 seconds long and probably cost you know, $300,000 to make 30 seconds of balls on a wall. Um, and I wanted to tell half an hour stories using similar technology for a much smaller budget. So I decided at this point in, in the history of computer animation that I couldn't, I didn't know how to do arms, legs, hair, or clothes. And I, I thought, okay, I want to retell Bible stories with bald, naked, limbless characters and sell them in Christian bookstores. <laughs> this could be a challenge. Um, and I thought, okay, well, what kind of characters could I use that kids would like that could be bald and naked and limbless and, and work in Christian bookstores? 
and I thought, a candy bar. What about a candy bar? I could, it's like easy to animate, no arms, no legs, no hair, no, it can be naked and nobody cares because it's candy, you know, it's obviously asexual. So it's, it's okay, you could do a candy bar. So I made a candy bar, I gave him a little face and I gave him kind of a goofy grin with one tooth and I thought, oh, he's kind of cute. And I, was, I had this little candy bar, he was on the computer screen, I just got married, my wife walked by looked in, saw the candy bar on the screen and said, you know, moms are going to be mad if you make their kids fall in love with candy bars. And I thought, gadzooks, she's right. <laughs> okay, what wouldn't moms be mad about their kids falling in love with that's shaped like a candy bar? And the next thing that popped into my head was a cucumber. So I threw away Mr. Candy Bar. His 15 minutes of fame was gone. Um, he's still lamenting this. He's filing lawsuits saying he was cheated out of his destiny. Uh, and made a cucumber. I took the face off the candy bar, put it on the cucumber. He had one big goofy tooth. He looked kind of silly. I, and I immediately knew how he would behave in almost any situation. He was just a silly cucumber. And I thought, but he is alone and it is not good. I need to make him a helpmate. Um, <laughs> so. So I was thinking Abbott and Costello, you know, is that kind of a thing. So he was tall and skinny. He needed a, a friend who was short and round. And it would be complementary shapes and complementary colors, green and red. What's round and red? Bingo, a tomato. So Bob the tomato was born. I thought about, do I give him just one tooth too? No, if they both have one teeth, then I'm making hee-haw with vegetables. So. <laughs> That's not what I'm going for here. So he got a full set of teeth, and since he had a full set of teeth, I figured, well, he must be the serious one that actually knows what he's talking about. So um, I went to my friend Mike Naraki, who, who got thrown out of Bible college at the same time for the same reason as, as I did. And we were doing puppet shows in, in Bible college. You had to do a service project, you know, like you have to go like talk to strangers about Jesus, which is terrifying to an introvert. But one of the options is like, okay, do you want a street witness on Hennepin Avenue or be on the puppet team? <laughs> so, and that's where I met uh, Mike Naraki. Uh, and so we started doing very strange puppet shows that we would write together and drive around Minnesota in a van and, and put them on in Baptist churches. Uh, it was actually a lot of fun. Um, so I went to Mike and said, Mike, okay, can you come up with a voice for the cucumber? Because Mike is actually a very silly guy and um, I'll come up with a voice for the tomato. And basically the voice for the tomato is me with too much caffeine. So as I get more energized in the talk, I'll turn into Bob, and I apologize for that distraction in advance. Um, and Mike came up with a voice for the, the cucumber, and um, then we tried to raise money. Okay, imagine this pitch <laughs> at a Christian publisher. They're vegetables, they'll sing, they'll dance, they'll tell Bible stories, it'll be great. Uh, the response we got is what you would expect. They said, well, let's, we need to see more. I had a 10-second test of Mr. Cucumber at this point and was trying to, you know, I was asking for, I don't know, $40,000 or something from a, a Christian publisher, a Bible publisher. Um, I didn't get very far. They said, if you go make it, actually go make it and bring it back and let us see it when it's done, we, we could probably sell it for you. And so I thought, okay, well, that's not going to work. So I kept working. I made a two-minute scene, and the two-minute scene was Bob the Tomato giving an impassioned plea for a new kind of kid's show, a show so bold, so daring, it could only be called one thing, 
veggie tails. And that's how it ended. And in the background, Larry the Cucumber was hopping back and forth looking for his blue plastic wind-up lobster. <laughs> uh, and by the way, the blue plastic wind-up lobster has cameo appearances in at least four or five different VeggieTales videos, the one we made from that very first two-minute promo. So I went back to the Christian, books, uh, Christian publishers and said, all right, look, it's two minutes, it's long, it's got more than one character, there's actually sound. The 10-second clip didn't have any sound to it at all. We did some voices. Uh, I hummed the Battle Hymn of the Republic in the background to show we could do music. <laughs> Can I have a big pot of money? And they said the same thing, if you uh, make it, we would love to sell it for you. So I spent about two years knocking on doors. This is 1991 and 1992, uh, getting nowhere. And finally, a couple in our small group, uh, we went to church and we were living in downtown Chicago at that time. A couple in our small group came forward and said, you know, what you're trying to do is too important for us to let it not happen. Um, And and wrote me a check for $80,000 out of their retirement fund. You know, I had no idea if I could actually do what I was saying I could do. I had never animated anything longer than two minutes, and I was proposing to do 30 minutes and somehow put it on VHS tapes and somehow get it into Christian bookstores. So I hired two guys right out of art school. Uh, we could only afford one computer because the computer and one computer and the software that ran on it to do computer animation was $75,000 in, in 1992. Um, so we set up on the north side of Chicago in a tiny little office space in between a Spanish grocery store and a comic book shop uh, run by an 18-year-old kid. And we triple shifted around the clock on our one computer to try to finish the first VeggieTales video in, through the winter of uh, uh, 1993. Um, it, we had interest, it was a very interesting experience because it was really a faith thing. You know, God, I feel like this is what you've called me to do. Here I go. It's time for you to show up. We discovered uh, about halfway through production, this is in the, like November of, of 1993, that there was a hole in the ceiling of our office space. And it was interesting because it was an apartment building, second floor apartments over storefronts on the north side of Chicago. Uh, Everyone on the second floor spoke only Spanish. Landlords spoke only Korean. So so it was odd, you know, from the get-go. But but, so I'm working there with one of the animators late one night, like probably midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and something plops onto the floor next to us. Something fell through the hole in the ceiling. And we look over and it was a half-eaten taco. (laughs) And my first thought was, it's manna from heaven. (laughs) This is, God is sustaining our efforts. My second thought was, wait, God is Mexican? (laughs) Bible doesn't say he isn't, so, you know. We got it done, uh, finished the first video just in time for Christmas 1993. I'd taken out ads in Christian parenting magazines because I didn't, when it was actually done, I didn't want to go back to the Christian publishers because they hadn't helped me at all. They were just going to have to watch this from the outside and feel bad. And I figured I'm going to sell it myself. I'm going to start the Amway of Christian kids video. How hard could that be? Uh, so we took it, got an 800 number, got the phone, set it up right next to our animation system. Um, we got a little credit card reader so we could take credit card orders. I didn't know that you hire companies to do that stuff for you. I thought, we'll do it. We'll do it ourselves. So, and then about that time, this is about November, as we're trying to get the show done in Chicago, uh, the 18-year-old next door who ran the comic book shop turns out the gas 
that we shared was in his name and he didn't pay the bill. So they turned off our gas. So we lost our heat. So I would come in in the middle of the night in November in Chicago, and my, my night shift animator is animating on a $75,000 silicon graphics workstation uh, wearing a parka with a blanket over his lap with a space heater under the blanket that's over his lap while answering our 800 number and writing down people's credit card numbers. It's the American dream. So that's how it started. We sold like 500 videos, VHS cassettes, uh, that first Christmas, which didn't even pay for the ads, much less anything else. Uh, but some of the Christian music companies in Nashville saw the ads, picked up the phone, ordered with their credit cards, and sure enough, five months later, we had a deal to take Veggie Tales into Christian bookstores. Um, at that point, it well, for a year, it did absolutely nothing, to be quite honest, because moms walked into Christian bookstores and said, Vegetables telling Bible stories? Let's see what Dobson has. <laughs> but there were college kids working in the Christian bookstores, and because you can't trust college kids, they wouldn't let them touch the Bibles or anything important. They would send them to the back, to the kids' department. So there's always a college kid managing the kids' department, and they just, you know, they added a VCR and a little TV back there for kids, and they had some video playing of some guy with an acoustic guitar and a sock puppet, you know, singing about Jesus poorly. Um, and the, the college kids got kind of sick of those, and then this weird vegetable thing comes in, and they say, well, let's put that on and check that out. And the college kids thought it was hilarious. They just think there's Monty Python references, there's just goofy, just the notion of vegetables acting out Bible stories. You know, they, they got it. They thought it was funny, so they left them on. So Veggie Tales started playing 24 hours a day in the back of Christian bookstores across the country. That's what really made it go, was these college kids saying, oh, you gotta check this out. The next time mom came in looking for another Dobson video, they were getting upsold to VeggieTales instead. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that's in 1996. Christmas 1996 was when it actually exploded. Uh, quite unexpectedly, not I didn't plan it, had no idea what caused it, but uh, I think we sold 50,000 VHS cassettes the first year we were in Christian bookstores and about 150,000 the second year and then that third year 1996 so about 700,000 uh, VeggieTales videos and we started getting calls suddenly out of the blue from companies that wanted to make VeggieTales hats and t-shirts and toys and uh, getting calls from Kmart and Walmart saying hey can we place an order and suddenly everything exploded and just that modicum of success greatly expanded my vision for what I could do for God. So I want to tell you tonight a story about really what the journey that I went on through all of this. Um, I grew up, like many of you, I imagine, uh, I, I grew up in the kind of the Christian environment. I grew up going to church. My mom was the choir director of a little church in small town Iowa. My dad was the Sunday school superintendent. When my grandfather wasn't the Sunday school superintendent, they tended to alternate. Um, and we were there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meetings, potlucks, church picnics. If the church was open, we were there. And I also grew, grew up going to Bible and missionary conferences, like my great-grandfather's conference. And when you grow up, in those environments, there are certain Christian-y phrases that stick to you. 
uh, phrases like, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You know, that phrase really hit me. If the only things that mattered were the things I did for Christ, well, then that's what I wanted to do. But there was another phrase that stuck to me. God can't steer a parked car. They may not technically have been scripture, <laughs> but they sure smelled like it. So if the only things that mattered were the things I did for Christ, and if God really couldn't steer a parked car, you know, I'm a, a nine-year-old kid with my puppets and my, my animation cameras. Like, well, I, I, can't, I don't want to be a parked car. I got to get busy. I got to start doing stuff. So I realized I had some kind of a gift for storytelling. So I decided, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm going to get busy. I'm going to make films. I'm going to make films for God. You know, I went to Bible college. I decided to go to Bible college and then film school. I never made a film school. Got kicked out of Bible college. Uh, but came back to Chicago and got a job in video production. And after, oh, about three years, I'd managed not only to learn the world of video production, but also the, the budding new world of computer animation. And therein, I realized I had found my tools to tell my stories and make my difference for the kingdom, to bring my dream of impact for God to life. So uh, in 1993, we made the first VeggieTales video. It came out, did nothing for about a year, and then suddenly it started selling. You know, the people who bought it really, really liked it, and they told their friends who really, really liked it, and they told their friends who really, really liked it, and before long, we'd sold a million videos, and then two million videos, and then five million videos, and then 10 million videos, and we started getting letters, uh, fan mail, as many as 400 pieces of fan mail a day from as far away as Australia, as, as parents just wanted to tell us what a difference we were making in the lives of their kids. So God was showing up. My dream was coming to life. I was making a huge difference. I thought if I can make, have this much impact just by making a few VHS cassettes, think of the impact I could have if I built the next Disney. Of course, I realized that would make me the next Walt. <laughs> I kind of liked the sound of that. Turns out, so did a lot of other people. I met with artists from Disney and DreamWorks and Warner Brothers, and some of them said, a lot of them were Christians, and said, you know, he, he could be the next Walt. And they wanted to sign up for the ride. So I hired all of them and put them all to work on all these projects that I'd put into motion. We started producing children's books and records, uh, a theme park show, a live touring theater show, our own feature film, computer software, toys. I, mean, I was building a Disney as fast as I could. So we grew, uh, by the year 2000, we had gone from three people to 210. Uh, we were the largest animation studio between the coasts. We'd just been named by Animation Magazine one of 10 studios to watch in worldwide animation. And I had just been named uh, in a special on PBS one of 10 people to watch in worldwide religion. In fact, the only two evangelical Christians that made the list were me and T.D. Jakes. Sounds like a really weird buddy cop movie. <laughs> right about then, everything started to go wrong. 
Uh, the executive team that I'd hired to run the company had done a really good job hiring a whole bunch of people, but they couldn't get along with each other and they couldn't get along with me. And we spent month after month arguing about seemingly simple things like whether or not to classify our core customer as Christian parents or as moral active parents and whether we needed to do segmentation studies and surveys and focus groups to figure out what we should be putting in our videos. And then in early uh, 2000, um, our sales suddenly stopped growing. They had more than doubled every year the company had been in existence. It kind of became something you just expected. It was God's will. I was the chosen one. <laughs> sales would double forever. We would eventually sell infinity videos. Um, and suddenly, they just stopped growing. And this was very bad because many of the people I had hired that had moved their, their families from Burbank, California or Orlando, Florida, I could only afford if sales had continued to grow. So the spring of 2000, I realized that everything I had built was in very real danger of falling apart around me. And I realized I had to do something that I'd promised myself I would never do. I had to lay people off. So from 210, to 180, to 150, down to 100. Every layoff broke my heart of all these faces that had come in just beaming with enthusiasm, excited to be a, a part of something bigger than they were, walked out stained with tears for a dream that for them had died way too soon. And in the middle of that, uh, we released our first feature film. Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. This was 2002. And even though it was only supposed to do about this much at the box office, because it was, after all, a, a small religious vegetable movie, uh, I thought, if it did double that, then I could hire everybody back and keep this going and keep this dream alive. And, and God could do that, right? Because he can do anything. So, so that'd be no big deal for him at all. He could do that. But he didn't. And then the home video came out, and I thought, well, that's really where all the money is in a kid's movie. So it was only supposed to sell about this many DVDs, but I figured if it sold twice that many, then I could keep this going and, and, and keep this dream growing and, and, and changing lives. And, and God could do that. All he had to do was show up, but he didn't. And in the middle of that, a former distributor took us to court, uh, claiming we'd breached a verbal agreement. And I had to spend two and a half weeks sitting in a courtroom in Dallas, Texas, wearing a suit and a tie, which for an artist is the third level of hell. <laughs> if I'm in the South, I say it was just the suit and the tie, not the Dallas, Texas part. But for you guys, I'll be honest. It was not just the suit and the tie. <laughs> And in the middle of that, all I could think was, okay, God, I think I can keep this together, keep this alive, if you'll just show up in this room and show these jurors the truth in this situation. And he could have, but he didn't. The jury gave them everything they were asking for and more, $12 million in damages. And walking out of court that day, I knew that it was over, that it was my third strike uh, that I was out, that Big Idea would have no choice but filing bankruptcy, and that every character I had created, every song I had composed, every story I had written would get packed up into a box and sold at an auction to the highest bidder to pay as much of the debt as possible. It happened in November of 2003. 
Right about then, I got a call from a big Christian university asking if I would come deliver their spring commencement address. And I had to decline, because I didn't know what to say, because I, I had no idea how God could just stand back from something that was doing so much good and watch it fall apart. And then I started hearing his whispers. Actually, they'd started about 18 months before then when I got an email from a woman that I had never met, who I don't believe had ever met me. And she started out by thanking me for the good work and congratulating me on my huge success, but then closed by saying, but keep an eye on your pride. And I thought, hmm, who do you think you are? You haven't even met me. The emails kept coming every month, every other month. I'm glad things are going so well for you, she said. She didn't know that they actually weren't, but, but keep an eye on your pride. And then, right before the court case went to trial, we had one last prayer meeting at Big Idea. The company was down to just 65 people from 210, and only 13 showed up at the prayer meeting because everyone was just so depressed. But the 13 of us prayed fervently for, for Big Idea, that God would save Big Idea, that he would keep my dream alive, that he would give Phil the wisdom to save Big Idea. But in the middle of that, there was a woman there who was the wife of one of our Disney artists. It was an amazing prayer warrior, but she was silent the whole prayer meeting. And after it was over, she came up to me and said, I think God has something for me to say to you. She said, I don't think this is about God and Big Idea. I think this is about God and Phil. And before it's over, she said, I think you might have to say goodbye to all of us. I couldn't breathe. I mean, how, how could this not be about big idea? Big idea was everything. It was the work I was doing for Christ. It was how he was using me to change the world. It was my impact. It was my dream. It was, it was everything. I didn't know what to do with that. Then God got tired of whispering and decided it was time to just speak plainly. <laughs> well, I told you about my great-grandfather's Bible conference in Northwest Iowa. Well, I hadn't been in a few years at this, that point because I got busy and, you know, there's no time for a Bible conference. But at this point, my mother was the director of the conference, and she told me, she came to me that year and said, you should really come. Just take some time off and come down to the Bible conference. The speakers are going to be great. It's a great time. Come on down. And I almost did, and I thought, no. I'm going bankrupt, and that really takes it out of you. <laughs> so she went and came back and handed me a cassette tape. Does anyone remember cassette tapes? They were like square CDs that rattled. She handed me a cassette tape and said, um, I think this is for you. It was a sermon preached uh, by an old family friend, a pastor named Richard Porter. And he started out by saying, what does it mean when God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life and he shows up in it and then without warning, the dream dies? What does that mean? And I thought, okay, you have my attention. He went on to tell his story. At that time, he was a senior pastor of a church in Vancouver and he had spent the prior 18 months leading a revival effort in the Vancouver area and churches had come together and they had a revival meeting and they filled a sports stadium and the spirit moved and it was amazing and they were planning the next one and the one after that and he said he was sure any day he was going to get a call from Christianity Today magazine saying, we hear there's something going on in Vancouver, tell us all about it. And suddenly without warning, 9-11 happened. And everyone got distracted, and the whole thing just fell apart. 
And he was so exhausted and so physically burnt out that he, he literally could not get out of bed. His doctors told him to take 12 months off. His elders told him he could have nine. And day after day, he lay in bed, wrestling with God, saying, if this is what it's like to work for you, I don't think I can do it anymore. And in the middle of that dark time, he went to church with his daughter, and his daughter's pastor preached a sermon on the story of the Shunammite woman from 2 Kings chapter 4. Does everybody know that story? It's not one of the biggest stories in the Bible. No one has ever decorated their nursery with pictures of the Shunammite woman. It's not, it hasn't hit that level quite yet. But it's, it's moving up. I'm promoting it heavily. Um, I'll, I'll summarize. Shunammite woman was a wealthy woman in Israel, and every time Elijah came through the area, she would cook for him. Apparently, she was a good cook because he started stopping by a lot. So she goes to her husband one day and says, we should build a room on the roof for Elijah. Now he could come by and have a meal and take a nap, which for, I think, any pastor is a dream come true. Um, <laughs> just planning ideas. Maybe not on the roof, but yeah, <laughs> not tonight. Um, Elijah was so appreciative that he calls her in one day and says, you've been so kind to me. What do you need? What can I do for you? She says, I don't need anything. I have a home among my people. But Elijah's servant comes to him and says, well, sir, her husband is very old and she has no son, meaning in that day and age, before long, she would be destitute. So Elijah calls her in and says, a year from now, you will hold a son. And you can see how much that dream meant to her by her response, because she says, don't lie to your servant. She's not calling Elijah a liar. What she's really saying is, don't go there. Don't touch that. Don't even wake that dream up. Elijah says, no, a year from now you will hold a son. Sure enough, a year later, she's holding a baby boy. And you can imagine how much she loves that boy, because not only is he her son, he, he's her dream. He's the promise that God has given her. And then one day as the boy's growing up, he goes to his father in the field and says, Dad, my head hurts. And like most dads, father says, go see your mother. So the boy goes to his mother, the Shunammite woman, curls up in her lap, and dies. And there she is holding the dream God gave her dead in her arms. She takes the boy up to Elijah's room and puts him on Elijah's bed, and she goes to find Elijah. He sees her coming in the distance and calls out, is everything all right? Is your son all right? Is your husband all right? She says, everything is all right. But she tells him what's happened. He says, okay, go back with my servant. Take my staff and go back to your son. And she says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So he says, okay, I'll, I'll come with. So Elijah comes back. He goes up to the room alone. He kneels and prays. And then he lies down on top of the body of the boy, hand to hand, nose to nose, foot to foot, and the boy sneezes and wakes up. And Elijah brings him back down and hands him back to his mother. What is the point of that? <laughs> I mean, why would God put that woman through that exercise? What the young pastor said that day was if God gives you a dream and he shows up in it and then without warning the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, the dream or him. 
the Shunammite woman's response is clear. She goes straight to Elijah. He's the man of God, and she wants to be as close to God as she can. When he says, go back with my servant to your son, she says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. She doesn't know what's going on, but she's going to hang on to God no matter what. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. And I can, I can conceive of that pretty easily if I think about it. He who has God plus a brand new car has nothing more than he who has God alone. Or he who has God plus a nice house has nothing more than he who has God alone. But if God is infinite and infinitely capable of meeting our needs just with him himself, you can't add to God. Nothing plus God is more than God alone. So you have to put everything in that blank. He who has God plus a warm, healthy marriage has nothing more than he who has God alone. And the one that really knocked me flat, he who has God plus an amazing ministry reaching millions of lives around the world has nothing more than he who has God alone. To my friend uh, Rick's conclusion, if God has given you a dream and he shows up in it, and it comes to life, and then without warning, the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, him or the dream. And once he's seen that, you may get your dream back, or you may not. You may live the rest of your life without it. But that'll be okay, because you'll have God. This truth, listening to this cassette tape in my car, in the garage... The, the door was open. It was okay. <laughs> when they make the movie, the door will be closed. It'll be, it'll be more dramatic that way. Um, this truth washed over me like I was standing under a waterfall. And then I thought about Abraham. Abraham had a dream. God gave him this vision, said, From you, I'll bring a great nation, and your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the, and the sands on the sea. And I'm sure Abraham was excited, but somewhere inside him there was a voice saying, Yeah, but I don't even have a son. So God said, Okay, we'll start there. Along comes Isaac. And you can just imagine how much God loves Isaac, because not only is he his son, he's the, he's the promise, he's the dream, he's how God's going to use him to change the world. And then one day, God shows up and says, Abraham, what do you love more, me or your dream? Well, that's easy. You. You, God. Okay. Put him on the altar. Kill him. But, but he's the promise. Yeah, he's how you're going to use me to change the world. He's everything. Put him on the altar. Kill him. And what God learned about Abraham that day is that Abraham would let go of everything before he would let go of God. And God said, okay, now I can use you. Suddenly I found myself facing a God that I had never heard about in Sunday school. A God that apparently wanted me to let go of my dreams. Why would God want us to let go of our dreams? Because anything you are unwilling to let go of is an idol, and you are in sin. I discovered that my, my intense drive to do good work had become an idol that defined me. Rather than finding my identity and my relationship with God, I was finding it in this intense drive to do good work. Well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to do good works? Well, sure, as Paul says to the church in Ephesus, for we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, there you go, let's get busy. God can't steer a parked car. 
wait a minute, read the second half of the verse. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, that's kind of interesting. So God knew even before I was born, the good work he wanted me to do. I don't have to run like crazy trying to find it. I don't have to try a thousand things and see what works. I just have to listen. The funny thing about the saying, God can't steer a parked car, is that while it is cute, it is not biblical. When people of great faith in the Bible don't know what God wants them to do, they don't do anything. They wait on him. Why is it so important to wait on God? Because if I'm not waiting on God, I have no idea what he wants me to do. And even if I have his directions, if I let his directions become more important than him, I am useless to him. I realized that I had made impact my number one goal. But the impact God has planned for us does not occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. This dream I had to be the next Walt Disney, the Christian Walt Disney, the I don't know what Walt Disney, was killing me. It was affecting my health, it was affecting my marriage, it was affecting my kids, it was affecting employees that moved across the country to follow a dream that I was looking to as an idol. And I realized that God didn't let it all fall apart because he didn't love me. He let it fall apart because he loved me so much. And he wanted to save me from myself. So I've started over. And I started out on my knees, literally on my knees, just saying, okay, God, you made me a storyteller. What stories do you want me to tell? At first, I got to the point where I actually didn't want to write anything. I was ready. I, I was reading the Bible so much and praying so much that I developed this completely different life and found that all my needs for, for impact, for ambition, for success, all even ministry, good success, all of those needs were being met by a life of prayer and reading scripture. And then finally, I, I remember I was in, in, uh, sitting up in bed with my wife one night and said, I don't want to write anything. I was ready to be done if that's what God wanted, to just rest in him and let everything else fall away. And then about two weeks later, I woke up in the middle of the night with a story in my head, a story that was so simple, uh, yet captured such a deep spiritual truth that the first time I read it to my wife, she cried. And I thought, oh, is this how it's going to work now? And the next week I had another idea, and the next week another one, and another one after that. And pretty soon I, I had more ideas than I knew what to do with. Some that were so, so small you could lose them between the cushions and the couch, and some that were so big they, they took my breath away. But every one of these new ideas came without a hint of anxiety over what it should be, how far it should go, how many lives it should touch. If, if building big idea in my Walt dream felt like pushing a giant boulder up a mountain, this felt like gliding on ice. So what's the point? What am I here to try to say to you guys? Beware your dreams, for dreams make dangerous friends. We all have them. Dreams for a happy life, rewarding work, healthy kids. Everybody has them. Television tells us to hang on tight to them 
to follow them no matter what, to believe in them always, because a dream is a wish a heart makes. Just always makes me wonder what kind of wishes elbows make. <laughs> Still working on that one. But dreams are misplaced longings. They're false lovers. Because God is enough. And he's not enough because he can make your dreams come true. No, you're confusing him with Merlin or Santa or Oprah. <laughs> God is enough even without your dreams. Without the healthy child, without the happy marriage, without the meaningful work. God was enough for the martyrs, even when the cavalry didn't show up and save the day, even when the lions and the fire won. And God is enough for you. The big difference, the big marked difference of my life now is a lack of stress. Every day I woke up saying, have I done enough yet? Am I going fast enough? Am I touching enough lives? Am I doing enough good? Have I done enough yet? And God didn't want me to live that way. He wanted me to take that burden, the burden of impact, the burden of my own ambition, my own dreams, and nail it to the cross, watch it die, and walk away from it. And now I'm writing kids' books. I'm doing a new series. I actually showed you one of them called What's in the Bible. Um, and it's just, it's such rewarding work because it doesn't come with the stress of how much, how far, how fast. I realize that God doesn't call us to focus on outcomes. He calls us to focus on obedience. What have you called me to do today, and am I doing it? And that has just as much to do with how I treat the girl who's bagging my groceries at the supermarket as it does with my big world-changing ministry. So I'm here, hopefully, to help you guys learn something and not make some of the same mistakes I've made. The impact God has planned for us doesn't occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. In the words of the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for the mega church I hope to plant. <laughs> so my soul pants for the million DVDs I hope to sell. No. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. Not a better life, not rewarding work, not healthy kids. You, oh God. I think we're going to have Q&A time now. Just a minute. Thank you. Okay. Do I have to go? No, you can stay there. Okay. No, you. Is this you where we go. do the raffle? This is where. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. Wasn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Well, now that Phil is gliding on ice. Uh, I think he still doesn't mind selling things. Is that true? No, it, it helps. Okay. It, it <laughs> propels you across the ice even faster. Excellent. All right.
So I will plug what he's selling tonight. Um, what Buck Denver asks, what's in the Bible? We've got uh, Genesis and Exodus, volume one and two. He's now into the New Testament now, right? And he's trying to leave as little time as possible for Revelation. <laughs> yeah. uh, Oops. Sorry, kids. Ran out of time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he also has the book, Me, Myself, and Bob, and you can get all of those out, out there. Um, I'm going to make a couple of other quick announcements before we do the q and I'll, I'll make this quick. Boy. Um, First thing I'll say is our next event, and this is in your program tonight, is with Ross Douthat, uh, Thursday, March 7th. I promise that every speaker that we have in the future will not have a connection to Eric Metaxas. Um, as it happens, Phil and Eric are friends. As it happens, Eric Metaxas visited Ross Douthat's ha house when Ross was about 13 years old, and they played each other in Jeopardy, the television show. And 13-year-old Ross Douthat was very mad when Eric Metaxas beat him. Um, he is the youngest ever, Ross is, the youngest ever New York Times op-ed columnist. And he's a great book out called Bad Religion, and so he's going to talk about faith and culture. If you would like us to remind you of that event by email, I would encourage you to please leave your email on this uh, green sheet, which you can place in the, um, what are they called, things in the narthex. Um, garbage? Gar no, that will not work. <laughs> The baskets. <laughs> you can also uh, sign up for emails on the website, and if you are someone who uses this thing called Facebook, uh, another easy way to follow what we are doing is by liking Faith and Life on Facebook. Uh, for 10 years now, uh, this series has been put on, uh, not because it's a budget item of this church, but exclusively through the generosity of individuals and corporations. Uh, who sponsor it entirely. Um, you are here tonight at absolutely no cost, thanks to their generosity. Many of them are with us here. I would ask you to thank them. All right, and now we are going to do a little bit of Q&A. Uh, we've got two microphones on either aisle here which I hope is sufficient. If we need a third one, John, where are you, John? John will grab a mic and walk around, but it's simplest if you could just come to one of these, and I would encourage you not to be shy, because um, we're going to take 10 or 15 minutes, and it'd be awkward if we had to sit silently now. <laughs> so, over there. Hi, Phil. Thanks. First of all, thanks for joining us tonight, and also thank you for the many fun videos that I've uh, watched along with my kids for many years, that, uh, from when they were little to now when they're in high school and college. But Wondering, what was the, the biblical, scriptural inspiration for silly songs such as I Love My Lips and Where's My, Hair, or, Where's my Hairbrush? Uh, <coughs> I, I Love My Lips, actually, uh, Mike writes the silly songs. I write the stories because I'm more of the teacher and he's kind of a little clownish at times. Um, I love my lips. He originally pitched it to me. It was I love my tongue. And, he, and it had a yodel solo in the middle. <laughs> and I said, I, I like the direction. Half of our audience is going to think we're endorsing speaking in tongues and the other half will think we're making fun of speaking in tongues. <laughs> Either way, we're doomed. Change it to a different body part. 
and, and he came back with lips. Uh, so no theological significance there except for intentional theological avoidance of significance. Um, the hairbrush song was actually, I wrote the very first silly song, uh, the water buffalo song. Uh, and so, you know, you can ask me about the spiritual significance of that. I, it was tax day in 1993, and I was walking through the federal court plaza in downtown Chicago with a handful of tax forms and started singing randomly, everybody's got a water buffalo, yours is fast, but mine is slow. I don't know where it came from. It didn't, it may be a metaphor for taxation, I'm not sure. <laughs> But I hummed it all the way back to work on the bus and then recorded it. I don't write, read or write music, so I have to record everything I come up with musically before it goes away and leaves me forever. And then I was writing the stories, and I said, okay, Mike, you know, time to pitch in. Come on. Come on, fella. Pull your weight here. Can you do the next Silly Song? And he came in a few weeks later and said, I was in the shower this morning, and I was looking for my razor. And I started singing, oh, where is my razor? Oh, where? And I said, oh, that's good. I like that idea. I like... I don't think we want kids running around the house looking for razor blades. <laughs> so you're seeing a pattern here, a pattern of our interaction. Funny but inappropriate. Call it redeem, redeem. Um, so I said, can you come up with something else that it would be okay if kids actually looked for? And he said, uh, how about a hairbrush? It's like, bingo. Funniest story about the hairbrush song. Very popular with kids. Uh, our first version of the, the Bob and Larry walk-around suits didn't have armholes because it didn't, you know, they were realistic and they, and they were rigid. They were big, like Larry is this tall, no armholes, so you got legs, you know. We discovered it was a big mistake if you lost your balance because <laughs> you, just, you just went down um, and you could not get back up. I've fallen and I can't cucumber down. Um, <laughs> So, so Larry, armless Larry, is at a, a Christian bookstore, and kids are lining up to meet him, and a kid runs up, little tiny kid runs up with a hairbrush that he's brought from home, says, hey, Larry, I got your hairbrush. <laughs> so Larry says, leans over to the kid, not Larry, whoever, the entity inside Larry, not speaking in Larry's voice, leans over to the kid and says, hold the hairbrush down by my leg. So the kid puts the hairbrush, a hand shoots out the leg hole, grabs the hairbrush, pulls it back in. Kid turns around, runs to his mom, says, Larry just grabbed my hairbrush with his butt. That's, that's when we decided we needed to redesign the suits, and, and they got ours. Does that answer your theological no, question? Now for, now for, thank you for that, but also that one of the Will there be future VeggieTales, or is that, is the, that come the, to an end? The new owners, uh, the, the, the company was bought out of bankruptcy by a secular media company in New York. Um, they hired about 20 of my staff, including Mike, my buddy Mike, uh, move them to Nashville, because apparently that's where all Christians live now. Um, and they uh, set up a new company there under the same name, Big Idea Entertainment, I think. And they've been making three a year for the last 10 years. And you didn't even notice. It's not going very well without me. No, I still do. 
I still do voices because I'm about half the characters, so I do the voices and, and I give notes on scripts sometimes when they ask me. Um, but I launched the new stuff. They're still making them. It's amazing. That's a, that's a fair question. Uh, how come we don't know they're still making them? Um, I don't know. Because you're busy watching American Idol and uh, Downton Abbey and, and not uh, standing in your Christian bookstore waiting for new DVDs to show up. They're still in Christian bookstores, but they're probably half the number of Christian bookstores today that there were 15 years ago. Um, and people go into them. You know, 15 years ago, the average shopper at a Christian bookstore walked in uh, once a month, and now the average shopper walks in once a quarter because, um, you know, Walmart took a lot of the business away, and then Walmart has been selling less and less DVD. But if you go into Target right now, you'll probably find four or five VeggieTales videos still today. You're just not looking. <laughs> okay, who else has a question? It can be about, you know, Entertainment, faith, life. <laughs> yes, sir. Is it me? Um, last night I was uh, teaching uh, maybe 20 fourth grade boys. This is the second week in a row now. I've popped in a What's in the Bible. I think we're on uh, Kings, First Kings, Second yeah. Kings. And so uh, for 20 minutes we have full attention and uh, we watched with my sons, uh, or with my son and my two daughters, up to that point. And uh, I was just wondering, could you share a little bit more about kind of how those come into? Uh, how do you how you did that? What is it like? Is it you from? with a b bunch of people that do it? Or? Yeah, the What's in the Bible series. We're basically walking kids through the entire Bible in 13 DVDs from Genesis to Revelation, and talking about every book, even Song of Solomon. Um, <laughs> never happened before. I pick up a children's Bible, some books just fell out somehow, <laughs> fell right out of the children's Bible. We're going there. Um, uh, after spending 10 years writing Veggie Tales, and, and I went through this period of really intense prayer you know, and really refocusing myself spiritually, I was looking back at, at the 10 years of Veggies, and the thought actually occurred to me did I just spend 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity? Because there's a difference between teaching Christian values and teaching Christian faith. Um, and I became very concerned that I was trying to talk kids into being forgiving being kind, being loving, without ever mentioning the role that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer. And so you end up in a situation where some kids, it comes easily to them, because they're good kids. They're naturally, you know, they follow the rules. They say, oh, well, that wasn't hard. Look, I'm kind and loving. I'm a good Christian. Other kids, it's enormously difficult. Yeah. And those kids just feel bad. You've just made them feel worse, because you've, you've basically played the role of the law by pointing out their, their shortcomings. And I realized, and I was looking at research, Galt did a study, uh, one of the things that he came up with was that, that half of adult Protestants in America today can't define the word grace, which he said was kind of central to the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I realized that we've done a terrible job for about 30 years, it seems, our primary focus for, for our most visible leaders has been uh, telling us who we should vote for and what social issues we should be really cranky about. Uh, but we've forgotten how to disciple. 
we've forgotten how to pass on our faith. And so we half, fully half the church in America can't, not only can they not live out grace in front of the eyes of a watching world, they can't even define the word. So in essence, what I was trying to do, there was, well, there was a day where we, we all had catechism, where everybody went through very formal training and every kid learned the exact same thing, no matter how boring it was, you had to learn it anyway. And then that broke up into denominational publishing houses. And then denominations would all do their own thing. And you, know, and you did that. If you were a Baptist, you did this. And if you were Lutheran, you did this. And if you were Episcopalian, you did this. But you learned it because you had to. Cause, and then we kind of, we, we got dis enfranchised with any sort of, you know, organized, I don't want to do it just because they're doing it or just because the home office says, and now we have all these independent curriculum companies that are all competing with each other and trying to make the most fun curriculum possible because that's the only way you can sell curriculum is by promising that it's going to be really fun and really easy for disinterested volunteers to put on. <laughs> and what's happened is that we've dumbed down the teaching to make it easy and saleable in a free market economy of teaching kids, and kids aren't learning. So what I'm kind of trying to do with what's in the Bible is create kind of a, a new catechism for churches that have thrown away catechism, um, a, a way to really walk through the whole Bible for kids. And, and we do things like, you know, what does the word salvation mean? What does the word redemption mean? Can you define that right now in a way that will make sense to a six-year-old? because they hear those words in big church, but nobody ever stops to define them. So we not only define them, we animate an illustration of them, and then we turn it into a song, uh, because music makes things sticky. Um, and we've had tremendous success. So there was a, someone was teaching a fourth grade Sunday school class, didn't know about what's in the Bible, and I just heard this story, and uh, said, uh, I'll give a piece of candy to anyone who can name one of the judges. And a little girl stood up and named all the judges in chronological order. <laughs> and he, you know, she got the candy, um, <laughs> but said, how do you know that? And she said, it's in what's in the Bible. It's because we put it in a song, and that makes it sticky. That's why I can recite the preamble to the Constitution, because of schoolhouse rock. <laughs> we the people, in order to form more perfect union, establish us a sure destiny. So <laughs> that's, yeah, and that, that frustrates me about how we teach in the church, because most of our teaching is, is lecturing, you know, even though lecturing has been shown to be the least effective form of teaching known to man. And, you know, and no one wants to give the same sermon twice, even though we learn through repetition. But we're afraid we'll get fired if we preach the same sermon again, so we have to change it up every week, and then we wonder why no one remembers anything we said two hours after we finished talking. So it's not just for kids. Wink, wink. <laughs> And, and the coolest thing was the first time we got a letter from somebody said, hey, just wanted you to know we're using what's in the Bible in our adult small groups. <laughs> like, they'll actually learn something. Okay. You, ma'am. Okay, so I'm just curious, what was the first VeggieTales story? Was it a Bible story? Because I remember the very early, early VeggieTales were Bible stories. Was it... Oh, just a story with biblical principles. The very first Veggie Tales episode was Where's God When I'm Scared, which had the story of Junior being afraid of the dark because he watched the Frankenstein movie. Um, <laughs> and then the second half was Daniel in the Lion's Den. So the very first episode actually had one contemporary story and one Bible story. Because some people have said, you know, oh, yeah, they only do these parodies nowadays. And then when I was a kid, you know, back in my day, Veggie Tales was all Bible stories. <laughs> 
No, it wasn't. <laughs> the, very, the second episode, I spoofed Gilligan's Island. The third episode, I spoofed Star Trek. Okay, so don't give me that. You know. I will come to their defense sometime and, and say, no, they're not doing very many Bible stories, partly because all the easy ones have already been done. You know, it's like the woman at the well does not make compelling film, you know? Is it theologically rich? Yes. Is it cinematically rich? No. They stand and they talk. So, you know, and we, we've, they've still never done Noah's Ark, but it's because of the water and all the animals. That's crazy. We don't have a budget for that. So it would end up being a bunch of peas in a desert, you know, to have to take it out of context. And that wouldn't be all that good. Yes, sir. So it strikes me you've gone through quite a roller coaster, quite a journey, and I very much appreciated how you interweave humor in today's discussion. But I got to think about your family as well, that they went through this journey as well. You know, I, I think in the very beginning, your spouse was supporting you when, you know, there was a silicon graphics machine and you there all the time, and you had to eat, so somebody was feeding you. And then kind of going up the coaster, then coming back down. Have they had similar journeys? Do they talk about it as well? Do they yeah. learn as well? Uh, my kids were, were young when it was big. You know, there, there were really interesting moments, like when, when we knew the bankruptcy was happening for sure. You know, I think my son was eight. You know, and he'd been telling people, I remember he was, he was in Cub Scouts that year, and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, I'm going to be the president of Big Idea Productions. You know, and I remember having to sit down with him and tell him that it was gone. You know, and, and I, was, I was expecting him to think about how does this affect him? You know, like, what does this mean for me? Instead, what he, he just blew me away what he said. He said, does this mean you can't tell kids about God anymore? You know, it's one of those things that just like, <laughs> um, and I, I just remember saying, you know, there are a million ways to tell kids about God. You know, this was just one of them. So, and it also, because I'm very introverted, which is why the puppets and the animation, you know, and the passing out in about 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> and I, I realized through that, as things were just falling apart and then coming on the other side, and God was, you know, kind of rebuilding me, that I needed to make that visible to my kids. I, I needed to extrovert what God was doing in my life. And so I started talking about it a lot more. And so coming out of that for my kids has really been just part of their growing up. You know, you lose things, and God leads you into something new, um, which is very helpful. Uh, my wife has had her own interesting journey because she was, you know, she was doing Bible studies and all sorts of stuff at Big Idea and, and leading women's groups for Big Idea. And so she had so identified with, you know, I'm the wife of Bob the Tomato <laughs> that it, what was hard for her was that when I lost everything, everybody went, oh, poor Phil. And nobody thought about her at all because they didn't realize what she had lost. So that's been a separate journey that she's still on. You know, and, she hasn't, and, our, and then our kids got towards junior high and high school and things got crazy because no one should ever be allowed to go to junior high. <laughs> it's just it's like Dante's Inferno. So, so she got busy with the kids and, and we're still trying to reintegrate and say, okay, on the other side of kids, do we work together? Because <laughs> you know? she's Junior Asparagus. She's the voice of Junior and, and she wrote songs for, and did all sorts of stuff. So it's still, that's still a work in progress, actually. But that's a good question. She wants to write a book about it at some point, but 
I don't know how it ends. Uh, I was just wondering, what's the difference between writing for Veggie Tales and then writing like a book, like My Life is a Tomato? And then, the, uh, what would your words be for writers specifically? What's the difference between writing? Uh, well, writing. Uh, my story, me, myself, and Bob, was very bizarre, and I didn't want to do it because I'd never written nonfiction or non-kid. You know, everything I wrote was silly and, and fictional and vegetable, fictional vegetable. Um, but I was telling my story, and actually, that started because it was Biola University that asked me to do their commencement, and I said, eh, eh, can't. <laughs> Bad things happening. And they said, okay, well, how about our winter commencement, which was five months later? And I said, okay, God, I'm going to say yes to this, and then you have five months to give me something to say. <laughs> and it was in that five months that he completely unpacked all this. And I got up, you know, five months later at commencement at Biola and said, whatever it is you're dreaming of doing for God, can you let it go? Can you walk away from it? You know, and then I was, I was bracing for the president of the university to grab me from behind and pull me down and say, four years of hard work ruined. <laughs> but instead, um, it was the first standing ovation that anyone could remember at a Biola commencement. And the head of the business school came up and said, I'm going to make that required reading or listening to every business student that comes through the business school. And then somebody said, would you give that talk here? I gave the talk at Willow Creek, and they wanted it to be longer. And then somebody said, would you write that as a magazine article? And then someone said, would you write that as a book? And all along, I was saying, but God, this isn't what I do. You know, I'm the vegetable guy for kids. Um, so the lesson there is don't define yourself. God defines you, because God can see what he made you to be. Uh, the difference between writing film and writing, you know, books, it's really, if you can see it in your head, to write a film, you need to be able to see it in your head. So you need to be more visually oriented. If you, and I could always see films in my head. Um, writing books, you just need to like the sound of your own voice, which is true for most Americans. Um, <laughs> um, so it is a different thing. but but. And, and the other big difference is writing a book is completely unstructured. You just go, you know, even long novels, people just write and write and write. And, and, and writing for film is like building a jigsaw puzzle. Every piece has to be in the right place, and you outline everything. And, every, you know, it's su there's such precision. And the fewer words, the better in a film. And sometimes in a book, the more words, the better, because it looks like you're buying more for your money. Um, <laughs> So they're two very different things, but it's, it's fun to do both. It depends on how visually you're oriented. Because I draw and I also write music, you know, I can't figure out how to put music in a book yet. Although I did put a CD in one of my kids' books because I was singing it as I was writing it. It annoyed the publisher. Let's do uh, one final question, if you don't mind. Is it a good one? Uh... <laughs> it really? I'm going to really, sit back down. Really? <laughs> Well, now Kevin uh, wants to ask one, too. Okay, so we'll do two okay. quick two Okay, quick you, you are okay. off the hook. I can ask a crappy question. You can question, give me good. the lamest question ever. <laughs> What's your favorite color? No, I'm just kidding. Um, no. You really are a, a, a truly a great storyteller. Um, and I really think, I, I am blessed to work as a youth director, and I really think a lot of my students would have loved to hear your story. So I'm wondering if you have any... Um, if you foresee yourself sharing this story with young people, you know, children and high schoolers, 
Um, but I'm also curious, I talk a lot with my students about the importance of vocation and listening to our call. And I'm curious what you think, how you think that might be different, you know, listening to our call versus chasing our dreams. Good point. Was that a good question? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do I have to remember the first part of it? Because <laughs> right now I can only remember the second part. Because what was the first part? Um, oh, right, 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 right. I'm trying to figure out, because I've done more, the more speaking I've done, I'm now doing a lot of college chapels, you know? And so I'll get up and tell, which is ironic, first of all. <laughs> Look, I made it. Um, but it, I can really, I've really been able to connect with kids, you know, Christian kids, Christian school, on their way to change the world, and you just give them a reality check and say, wait a minute, where's your focus? You know, slow down, focus on God. You know, and, and that's been really, really uh, rewarding. Uh, I just started, a, about eight months ago, started a weekly podcast, and it's with a friend of mine who writes for an editor at Christianity Today, uh, who's all you know, kind of funny, younger than I am, even younger. Um, I'm not young anymore, I guess. And, and we're doing a weekly podcast, and it's a lot of college kids listening because um, we're talking about current events, you know, but not like the 700 Club talks about current events. I'll just leave that there. Um, <laughs> Chris, the goal was if you've got Pat Robertson and Stephen Colbert. <laughs> what's in the middle? Okay. Um, me. Um, yeah, the second question was, oh, great, it was the good one, too. What was the second question? <laughs> Vocation, right. I, yeah, because I have a lot of kids say, well, I was all excited about doing this, but now I don't know. If it was my dream, was it God? I don't know. What should I do? Should I just lie down? Should, you know, should I be a monk? Um, and I had one guy write me after he read an interview with me. He said, you sound sad. He says, it sounds like you've given up. You know, don't be afraid to dream again. And, and I wrote back to him and said, I have a zillion ideas of stuff would be fun to do, but one, when I take one of them, one of my ideas, and I call it my dream, I'm holding on to it too tightly. You know, so when I get a kid who'll come up to me and say, oh, I got this movie idea, and I really want to make this, and I can just see they're just so passionate about this one idea, often my first question is, would you be okay if that never happens? And, and by how their face changes, you can tell immediately how important that is to them. You know? and, I, and I had one friend that I had to confront because he spent five years trying to raise money for one story. You know, I said, I got this story, God wants me to tell it, I'm doing pitches and it's not working. And I said, well, what if you had three stories so that when you actually got a meeting with an investor and they didn't like that one, you could pull out another one. You know, and which was another way to say, are you holding on to that story too tightly? You know, so for my message for kids, I mean, God wires us with passions and abilities and our wiring is a clue to the work he has prepared for us. You know, so if you're passionate about storytelling, he's probably not calling you in a direction where you never get to use that gifting. But, are you okay not doing it? Are you okay not telling stories? Are you okay resting in God and then letting him, you know, if, once you find your identity in God, because we hurt each other when we pursue our dreams. 
because we've been taught in this culture that a dream is more important than anything. You know, we do terrible things to each other. Tanya Harding, I don't know if you remember her, she wanted, her dream was to win the gold medal in figure skating in the Olympics. And she wanted it, wanted it so bad, and she was holding on tight to her dreams, and she wanted it so bad, and Disney told her never to let go of her dreams, so she hired a thug to whack Nancy Kerrigan in the knees with a wrench so that Nancy Kerrigan wouldn't win, and she would. Ha, ha, ha. That's what we do to each other. You know, I'll just say to kids sometimes, you know, Hitler had a dream. So it's, it's trying to kind of unwrap the emotional attachment, even of just the word, because of what Disney did with the word. Because it's our religion, you know, it's the American religion. And to try to get kids back, okay, how did God wire you? Tell me what you've done that you really enjoy. You know, what have you done growing up that any building stuff, helping people, talking to people, socializing with, what is it that you enjoy? Because that's a clue. Uh, Parker Palmer said, uh, vocation is the intersection of my great gifting and the world's great need. You know, it's like, okay, what has God wired me to do and where do I see a need for that? And I'm gonna go, you know, try to fill that hole. And that's where you start. When we get specific about outcomes is when I think we've gone over the line. We say, not only do I have a gifting for social work, but I'm going to build the largest soup kitchen in the Tri-County area. Like, wait a minute. Did God literally tell you to do that? If not, let it go. Don't worry about outcomes. Worry about obedience. If that helps. And the last one. All right. So despite the fact Tim keeps looking at his watch, we're I know. all still Why here. He and you haven't passed out yet. I so bet he I'll doesn't be... do that when he's preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, sit down. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> letting that one sit, Tim. All right, so my question is a, a preamble. So uh, my youngest is a junior in high school now, but we loved VeggieTales. We watched them. We sang them on road trips to the CDs and everything. So I was like, David, the guy that made VeggieTales is going to speak tonight. Do you want to come? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dad, no, I got too much homework. So I brought my video camera because I'm going to film what, the, what Bob looks like in real life. And I got, here, I got here a little late, and I'm walking up the stairs thinking, I'm going to recognize the voice, and, and I have to confess I didn't. Now, maybe I haven't watched VeggieTales in too long. They're vegetables, remember? Right. <laughs> okay. So I guess the question is, uh, and you've got to give me like 10 seconds to get back to my seat to turn my camera on, but uh, unless you're pro, uh, uh, contractually to, prohibited is, to doing is, the Bob the Tomato voice. This is shaping up to be a very bad last question. <laughs> Well, she was supposed to ask the lame one, so I have to. So anyway, I can't... I started I, out my talk by doing the voices. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Oh, e darn it. I every, told you I was late. Everyone else was on time. <laughs> All right, well, come, come closer. Don't do that. Don't. Don't do that. Come here. Come to the cross. <laughs> There's room. Can I give an altar call? Is that do, okay. Lutherans, sure. do Lutherans still do that? No. Okay. So we'll, we'll pretend everybody's left and it's just you and me. No? No. You wanna hear it again? Well I don't have to come up. Okay, so film. Yeah, all right. Are um, you filming? Uh, right. Do you know how to work that? <laughs> Okay, so you're on now. Okay. Hi, kids. I'm Bob the Tomato, and Larry and I really like it when people show up on time.
despite that last, last question. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out on a cold winter's night. And Phil, we are so glad you could be with us. We're gonna give you a small uh, gift to remind you of your, your time with us. It's a piece of granite, and it says simply, with thanks awesome. to Phil Vischer for bringing faith to life, and we do thank you cool. very much indeed. Thank you.